to acknowledge the untimely passing of uh, Christopher Shea. Uh, Christopher Shea was an attorney who appeared before the commission, uh, represented officers before the commission, um, and represented them zealously and demonstrated unwavering commitment to his clients. Um, and he, he, will be, uh, he will be deeply missed. All right, good evening, the chair has called the meeting to order. If you could please rise for the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Vice President Carter Overstone, I'd like to take roll. My class. Was he? Yeah. Commissioner Walker. Here. Commissioner Benedicto. Here. Commissioner Yanez is excused. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Vice President Carter Overstone, you have a quorum. Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Executive Director Paul Henderson from the Department of Police Accountability. For members of the pu uh, public, line item one, the weekly officer recognition is going to be postponed until November 1st due to this sergeant is uh, away at training and is not able to be with us tonight. Line item two, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the secretary of the police commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium. Go ahead. Good afternoon, my name is Paul Allen. Uh, five months ago, I brought to the Commission's attention that it has failed to comply with Section 4.1022 of the City Charter that requires the Commission, quote, to develop and keep current an annual statement of purpose outlining its areas of jurisdiction, authorities, purpose, and goals, subject to review and approval by the mayor and board of supervisors. After inquiry on Monday, I was told that commission compliance with this provision awaits the hiring of a policy analyst. This is a laughable excuse for delay and really an abrogation of the, committee, of the commission's statutory duty. Commissioners, with respect, this is your job, not that of a not yet hired policy analyst. The first order of business, as I suggested in a memorandum to you two months ago, should be to direct counsel to prepare a legal memorandum on the commission's, quote, areas of jurisdiction and authorities. Indeed, one would have thought that that document would already be behind tab one of a commission briefing book. Then there is the articulation of the commission's purpose and goals. That's your job. You should take pen to paper and write down what you understand to be the purpose and goals of the Commission within its statutory responsibility. Importantly, 4.1022 declares that the annual statement is, quote, subject to review and approval by the Mayor and Board of Supervisors. Intentionally or not, the absence of such a statement necessarily forecloses such review and approval, at least under that provision of the Charter. It is your job, in short, to prepare the annual statement, not anyone else's. At every meeting of the commission, we hear about SFPD accountability. 
is this commission subject to the same standard? Let's dispense with the excuses compliant. Hi, this is my first time doing this, so if I do something wrong, let me know. <laughs> my name is Angela Tickler. Commissioners, it is very disappointing that you approved DGO 5.25 last week because DGO 5.25 begs a very dangerous question. What will prevent this anti-law enforcement commission from using officer safety as grounds to stop the police department from enforcing further laws? It's common knowledge that most of what SFPD does is or can be dangerous, but so is your plan to micromanage the SFPD out of existence, which I'm pretty certain is the goal of at least some of you. At a bare minimum, data on the number of officers hurt during foot pursuits should be provided to the public to see if such a policy is even worth pursuing. And if I were an officer, and instead of being able to use my training, judgment, and experience to make a split-second decision about doing my job, I had to go through a pages-long decision tree on how to react and then run the risk of having my career jeopardized because seven non-police officers with no experience have made yet another policy, well, I would either quit or not chase the suspect. Not worth it. But that is the end goal for some of you, right? Less criminals going to jail when there are less ways for the police to respond to the crimes they commit. Meanwhile, San Francisco's international reputation and financial stability are in a shambles. Uncuff the police and let them do their jobs. See how you can help alleviate the problems of law enforcement short staffing by reducing and streamlining paperwork and processes that keep them off the streets. You are not authorized to involve yourself in tactical decisions of SFPD, nor is this commission tasked with inserting itself into the operations of SFPD. Your role is limited to policy and procedure, and that must still be in line with the overall objectives of the county and the city. Allowing criminals to simply turn and run and effectively prohibit. Thank you. Good evening, commissioners. For those who don't know me, my name is Jay Connor Biratega, and I'm co-president of Iconic D3. As always, I want to thank our men and women of SFPD for the work they do to keep the rest of us safe. I'm here because two weeks ago, the police union president and a current commissioner requested an investigation into how private information was leaked to the press. And now this resident is here demanding that this commission investigate as to how any private information was leaked to the press. Our officers operate on the premise of trust that those in leadership roles that concern SFPD are handling sensitive information carefully and an investigation is needed to resolve or restore that trust. I also demand that this commission to support both ballot initiatives that are mayor and supervisors for minimal staffing requirement and granting them the tools and ability to prevent, solve the crimes of retail theft, auto theft, car break-ins, and more. If you don't, then I can see in the future a ballot initiative where we end the power of this police commission.
Understand this, average San Franciscans have woken up and are no longer going to accept the outrageous policies of this commission, an act that hampers our police force from working to keep us safe. The people of San Francisco's support for SFPD outnumber this commission 800,000 times to seven. Thank you. Yes, good evening. Uh, I didn't want to come tonight, honestly, I'm tired, but I didn't want to wait two weeks. It's after what I said to the board, uh, uh, the full board of supervisors yesterday, it's like a, make sure there is a nail. But basically, all I want to tell you tonight is to remember what I told you last time, to own yourself, because it's a process to understand what it means, really. And then you share the information, it's key, you own yourself there too, right? So, uh, because the results are going to show quickly. It's automatic. Because respect is going to be like, yeah, now we must respect more each other because we won't take any crap. I mean, unfortunately, we'll have to deal with that, but at least we know where to say, hey, that's it now. Right? Okay. Love it. Bye. Hello. Um, again, I guess I can use the overhead. <laughs> My name is Paulette Brown. My son was murdered August 14, 2006. It's 17 years since he's been murdered. I am still waiting for some other way to have these homicides investigated. I know last time we talked about getting, hiring other people to come in and, and tipsters so they can get paid some kind of money to, to talk about the homicides that are going on. I'm still yet to hear about that. I am still waiting. Like I said, this is not just about my child. It's about all, I stand with all the mothers and fathers on this thing here about all the unsolved homicides that yet to be unsolved. I bring these pictures of t all the time of me standing over my son lifeless body. No mother should have to do this. I come here every Wednesday pleading for justice for my child. The only way that I can talk to you is with pictures. That's my son's face. They cut him open. They cut his head open for an autopsy, and this is what I'm left with. I want justice for my child. His name was Aubrey, Aubrey Abracasa. He existed, he was full of life. No mother should have to go through this. No mother should have to continue to come here seeking justice for her child. I need justice for my child and I'm asking for your support to continue to find somebody to hire to investigate these cases, especially my sons. If anyone has any information regarding the murder of Aubrey Abracasa, you can call the anonymous 24-7 tip line at 415-575-4444. And that is the end of public comment. Uh, just to inform the public, Item nine on the agenda is gonna be removed from today's meeting and rescheduled for a future meeting. 
Uh, Sergeant, could you please call the next item? Line item three, consent calendar, receive and file action. Starbucks coffee donation, total cost $800, $80 per district station for national coffee with a cop and the 2023 department awards certification. Motion to, re motion to receive and file. Second. For any member of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item three, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Commissioner Walker on the motion, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item four, Chief's Report Discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities the Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, uh, Sergeant Youngblood. Good afternoon, good evening. Uh, Executive Director Henderson, Vice President Carter Overstone, Commissioners, and the public. Uh, I will start this week's report with just a general crime statistic, just very briefly, and then uh, go to some of the events and incidents that have happened over the past week. Uh, starting with crime for this week, overall there's a 6% decrease in overall uh, part one crime. That is a difference of um, about 40, uh, 2,200 2, crimes fewer than this time last year, approximately. Uh, property crime is down 7%, violent crime is still up 3%. As to our violent crimes, our homicides are at 43 compared to 42 year to date, uh, this time last year, so it's up 2%. Our clearance rate overall is 72%. And um, there have been a total of three homicides in the month of October. <clears throat> our shootings are down just slightly, um, 3% from 160, one, 167 year to date total gun violence victims to one set from 172 this time last year, so that's a 3% decrease. As far as um, homicides with firearms, they are even with this time last year. Our weapon seizures, we're at 866 firearms recovered year to date. That's a 2% increase over 2022. As far as ghost guns, we've seen a 10% uh, increase in ghost guns from this time last year. We have 176 ghost guns uh, compared to 161 seized this time last year. There were three uh, non-fatal shooting incidents re resulting in five victims over this past week. Uh, one was at Polk and Sutter in the Northern District. This was uh, on October 12th at 3.30 a.m. The victim was on the sidewalk when approached by two subjects who demanded the victim's belongings. After the subject fled with the victim's belongings, the victim realized he had been shot. He, the victim was transported with non-life-threatening injuries. That investigation is ongoing. No arrests have been made at this time. Uh, the other shooting was at Leavenworth and Golden Gate, three victims in total. That was on October 12th at 12.43 p.m. Uh, midday. Three victims were in and or near a vehicle when the suspect pulled up fired several shots and fled from the location. Two victims were transported from the scene with gunshot injuries. A third victim self-transported. All were in stable condition, uh, non-life-threatening injuries. That investigation is ongoing, but no arrests have been made at this time. If anyone has any information about these shootings, 
please call our tip line at 415-575-4444. There were three, uh, the, the fifth victim was a self-inflicted wound and um, that is not to believe to be a criminal matter. Uh, I wanna go into a few really um, good arrests this past week. First one is our organized crime effort continues with our, what we're calling our organized retail theft blitz. And basically for those, uh, because we've gotten this question, the blitz means we're just putting a lot more resources into this. Um, but Ingleside officers conducted a surveillance uh, operation at Walgreens located it basically at Mission in Geneva when multiple subjects entered the stores, entered the store all dressed in masks and dark clothing. The subjects quickly grabbed and concealed store merchandise. And um, when it was all said and done, our officers were able to arrest six of the eight individuals, including one juvenile. Uh, there was also a baby with this group of suspects and that infant was released to the Alameda County uh, Child Protective Services. Two subjects were able to exit the store before officers could uh, detain them and that investigation is ongoing, but all merchandise that they were attempting to steal was recovered and six out of the eight uh, individuals were arrested. These operations are ongoing. We've done a number of them uh, over the last uh, several months and we have made arrests uh, in every one of these operations that we have conducted. So this is a strategy that we will continue. Uh, we're working hand in hand with our retail community to, to make these, make these uh, types of, of operations successful and we've had really good success, so that will continue. Message being for people who would be thieves who wanna go in stores and um, steal property is that we may be in there, police officers with store security. So um, we're trying to discourage people from doing that and do as much as we can to reduce the thefts in our city, the retail thefts in our city. Um, another significant incident, this was an auto burglary that turned into an assault on an officer in a vehicle pursuit. Officers responded to a vehicle break-in at Urban Street and 43rd Avenue. This was on October 12th at 12, 2.12 in the morning, 2.12 a.m. Suspects fled on foot and jumped into a waiting vehicle at a high rate of speed. Officers attempted to stop the suspect during the foot pursuit, was dragged by the suspect's vehicle for approximately three feet, sustaining minor injuries. Therefore, a pursuit was initiated. As the vehicle entered the freeway, the California Highway Patrol assisted and the vehicle eventually stopped and a single occupant fled, eluding capture. So that investigation is ongoing to identify that person. Um, and we will keep you updated on that one. Lastly, um, we had a armed robbery at a Smart and Final. This is becoming uh, a trend that we wanna get arms around. We've had an increase in robberies this year, about 16% higher than this time last year. This particular incident occurred on October 12th at 10.53 a.m. at the Smart and Final. Two suspects walked to the cash register to make a purchase when the clerk opened the register. A note was passed to the clerk indicating that the person had a gun and the store was being robbed. Um, the suspect was able to escape with cash and no arrest has been made. That is still under investigation and the evidence is being examined in that case. And lastly, just a couple of uh, updates. There was a joint news conference today regarding the APEC, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Conference that will be happening next month. It was led by the U.S. Secret Service, who is the lead uh, law enforcement agency on this. 
this is a national special security event, which basically is equivalent of a presidential inauguration in terms of the security needs. Uh, there will be 21 heads of states, including our head of state and vice president here. We're expected to have about 20,000 uh, visitors to attend this conference. In one way or another, about 1,000 uh, media outlets will be here. So it is a, a heavy lift for the department. We will be fully deployed, mobilized, everybody will be working. And uh, most importantly, this will cause some disruption with public transportation. There will be street closures in the venues that have to be um, cordoned off in, in terms of security measures. And that information can be found on the SFMTA website. If for the public, sfmta.com. And if you scroll down, you'll see a link that says APEC, and it has a map with all the closures and all that. One of the things that we want to make sure that we do as a city is communicate with the public um, so people, uh, people's disruptions can be minimized. There will be disruptions, traffic closures, and the like. So just we will keep the public involved in that. And um, all that information was put out today during this press event including the maps that were made public uh, with the street closures. And you can find that, again, on SFMTA's website. It's up and running. I just checked before this meeting. So the public can get uh, an idea of what will be closed and when. And that is it for, for my report. Thank you for the report, Chief. Um, I'm wondering if you might provide any update on our recent uh, use of bait cars, um, just if, if there's been any arrests associated with them or um, just any update you can give. Yeah, uh, yes, the bait cars have, we have made several arrests on bait cars and we have ongoing investigations. Um, it has been overall a success, so we have to figure out a way to build up our capacity for those investigations, but we have had some success with our Baker operations. Could you give us a sense of the scope, you know, roughly how many arrests? Um, just recently, I think we've made five arrests and separate incidents we've had, and, and we have some spinoff investigations identifying suspects who we believe are casing that didn't go through with it for one way or another. Um, not everyone yields an arrest, but we have had some success, so we will continue that. And again, we're, what we're going to try to do is build more capacity. Um, part of our challenge right now is with all the special events and protests, we've had to pull bait car operations to put those officers in uniform to um, provide um, policing for, the, for a lot of the protests that we've had because of the uh, conflict in Israel. So that has hampered us somewhat recently, but um, we, will we will continue to do it. Great. Thank you. Uh, I guess seeing no names in the queue, uh, late breaking. Commissioner Byrne. Thank you, uh, Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, <clears throat> I know there's a virtual um, uh, town hall tomorrow on the, on the uh, <clears throat> shooting. You can confirm that the district attorney's office is the lead investigator on this, or is it the California Department of Justice? No, on the criminal uh, investigation of the officers who, or the officer, single, that discharges weapon, the district attorney's IIB is the lead on that. And internal affairs, our, our uh, investigative, our internal affairs is the lead on the administrative investigation. We are coordinating with um, 
the State Department just communications-wise, because it is a consulate office. Technically, it happened on foreign soil. Um, however, it's, it's, it is very well coordinated. And in terms of the state of California DOJ, they were called, they did respond, this did not meet their criteria. And um, <clears throat> did the uh, Chinese authorities in ask the San Francisco police to intervene? As far as intervening on the- uh, Coming to the scene of, of, of the crash into the consulate. Yes, the, uh, the, the 911 calls came from the consulate office, so. Okay. We responded to, there were many calls, but some of them came from that office. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for reminding me. I forgot to mention that, and it was in my notes. The town hall will be tomorrow at uh, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. 3 o'clock. All right. Sergeant, could you take us to public comment, please? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 4, the chief's report, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item five, DPA director's report discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Executive Director Henderson. Thank you, good evening. Uh, so currently we are at 630 cases, uh, investigations that have been opened this year uh, at DPA. Uh, we've closed 577 cases. Currently, we have 308 investigations that are pending. We've sustained 43 cases so far this year uh, and mediated 31. Uh, we have 22 cases whose investigations have gone beyond the nine-month uh, nine-month period of investigation. That's still less than the one-year 3304 deadline. Uh, and it's four less than this time last year in terms of evaluating or comparing those cases. Uh, of the 22 cases that we have who have investigations that have gone longer than nine months, 19 of those cases have been told. And again, all of these stats are available on our website. Uh, in terms of cases that we have pending, there are seven cases that are still pending with the police commission and there are 82 cases who are, that are still pending decisions with the chief's office. In terms of our weekly trends, uh, from this time from last week, uh, the highest percentage of cases that we got, was 12%, were for allegations. Again, these are allegations for neglect of duty, uh, alleging officers failing to properly investigate and execute a duty. Uh, there were a total of 33 of those allegations. The full breakdown is available online at the website. Also, the highest precinct, uh, the highest level of complaints this week for, was from precinct uh, in the Southern District, uh, and there were four allegations made in that, dist in that precinct. Uh, in terms of outreach this week, uh, our quarterly reports are now available. Uh, in case people don't just want to look on the website. Uh, those reports are now going to be available on the social media threads, so that's Instagram, threads, uh, and X, formerly Twitter. Uh, that will also include uh, images from our Community Connect uh, processes that we engage in. Uh, our new outreach director that I introduced uh, earlier this month uh, this week, uh, visited and did a walkthrough in the Tenderloin uh, with staff from the mayor's office uh, and also attended an event in the Castro with the Lesbians Who Tech, 
group uh, addressing civil rights and public safety. Uh, in terms of audit uh, this week, uh, the draft proposal should go out any day now uh, for the latest audit, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, it should be out, it should be given to the police department for final review this week. Uh, there's no cases currently in closed session this evening with DPA present in the court in the hearing room today with me in case there are issues that come up uh, that relate to DPA are my uh, chief of the legal team uh, Deanna Rosenstein and uh, our director of policy Janelle Kaywood and senior investigator Candace Carpenter. Uh, folks have information for DPA, they can contact us directly through the website, sfgov.org forward slash DPA, uh, or they can contact the office directly at 415-241-7711. Uh, we have commentary and a presentation uh, later on in the agenda, so I will reserve my comments on those issues uh, as they're called in order from the agenda. That concludes my weekly report. Thank you for the report. I see no names in the queue. Um, Sergeant, could we go to public comment, please? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five, the DPA director's report, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item six, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Um, I, I've uh, been to a couple of neighborhood meetings, um, especially the Stop Crime SF group um, that had the chief and DA Jenkins speaking about policies and programs that they're working on. And um, it was really good to hear. I think the general um, comments from the, the public were in appreciation for all the work the department is doing. Um, it was really good to hear. and. Thank you for your presentation. It was really comprehensive. So um, I think that's it for me. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much there, uh, Vice President Carter. I uh, just want to uh, make the announcement. Uh, last, this last Monday on the Wards Committee, me and Burns went through the list of, um, I guess, members that will be receiving the Medal of Valor and also the Mary's uh, Conduct Award. I uh, want to thank uh, Sergeant uh, Reynolds and the staff and the chief bring, bringing forward uh, these members uh, for their outstanding courage. As I read through some of their, I guess, um, incident and uh, achievements and what they did, I was very, you know, proud of them and uh, keeping our community safe. So thanks again, uh, bringing these members forward. Thank you, Commissioner Burns, too. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto. Uh, thank you, Mr. Vice President. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Commissioner Yee and Commissioner Byrne for representing the commission on the awards uh, meeting and, and looking forward to recognizing those officers who received uh, those awards. Um, 
Just a couple of updates related to DGOs. I plan to, in the coming weeks, reach out to uh, the written directives unit to get an update on the, DG the status of the DGOs. I've been assigned, particularly the ones that have been uh, have had very little activity in recent months. Uh, and on that note, I know Commissioner Yanez brought it up last week, but I've asked to have an update on uh, DGO 7.1 regarding juveniles agendized. Uh, we had a very productive working group on that. Uh, on that general order, we had a joint presentation with the Juvenile uh, Justice Commission, and so want to make sure that we're keeping uh, attention on that, uh, particularly in light of, you know, we, we've seen uh, events like Hillbomb or the, the Mission High School and the six high school students, or high schools that, that walked out today that we're seeing uh, a lot of activism, a lot of activity, and, and which increases the, the, the chance of interactions with youth and want to make sure that our policies are uh, best practices and in the best shape when it comes to the department's interactions with youth. So we'll be looking for an update on that as well. Thank you. Uh, just one update for me. Um, Mayor Breed recently announced a proposed ballot measure to make reforms, uh, various reforms to the police commission. I thought I would be remiss if I didn't address those since I imagine they're fresh in the public's mind. Um, there's a number of proposed reforms. The ones that apply to the police commission, there's three main prongs, which are uh, making changes to our vehicle pursuit policy, reducing administrative burden on officers as it relates to certain types of use of force, and uh, creating a public outreach process. Um, and I think that at a high level, all of those things, uh, I certainly support all of those things in, in principle. Um, and if Mayor Breed had reached out to the commission, she actually would have discovered that the commission has already accomplished, either accomplished all of those things or actively working on, on those things. Um, but she didn't reach out to the commission. Um, and, and that's because this proposal is not so much about public safety as it is about politics. Uh, it's about blaming the commission for- City attorney, are we supposed to be the, discussing a ballot measure at the commission meeting where there's no agenda item? Uh, good evening. You raised two issues. One is that it's not on the agenda, so matters that are not on the agenda shouldn't be discussed. The second thing, we have a political activities memo that's available that I'm happy to pass around um, on the city attorney's website. So the rule is that we're not um, able to use city resources to advocate for or against a ballot measure, but you could ask about impacts. Great. Okay, so I will address the, the impacts of this proposal as it relates to the core of the commission's jurisdiction. Um, so, I object to this discussion about the ballot measure. Thank you, Commissioner. Um, all right. Well, I just wanted to address each of the, the key prongs um, of, of the ballot initiative. Um, All right, Commissioners, we have last quorum. Guess we'll sit tight then until our friends rejoin us. All right, I've been advised that um, we need to take a recess uh, until we have a quorum again in order to comply with 
state public meeting laws. So uh, we'll just wait until our, our friends rejoin us and we'll uh, press ahead. San Francisco Government Television.
right, commissioners, we are back in open session. All right, we are back on the record. Um, I will postpone my comments into a future time when uh, the commission has a quorum. Seeing no names in the chat, uh, Sergeant, could you take us to public comment, please? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item six, commission reports, please approach the podium. Just to clarify, we do have quorum. I just want to make sure that the record is clear. You meant the full compilation of seven commissioners. I until my colleagues won't sc scurry out of the room before I can finish a sentence. All right. And commissioners, we have no public comment. Line item seven, presentation and discussion on the crisis intervention team's 2022 annual report. Discussion. Good evening, everyone. Um, good evening, Chief Scott, Assistant Chief Flaherty, um, uh, Acting President Carter Overstone, Commissioners, and Executive Director Henderson. Thank you so much for having us here today. Um, I am Sergeant Laura Colleen and, uh, from the Crisis Intervention Unit, and today here with me is Officer Elizabeth Prelinger, also from the CIT Unit. Lieutenant Molina, who created this presentation for you is unable to be here today. So we are gonna go ahead and present this material on his behalf. Um, we're gonna just quickly take a look at what the unit offers and then some quick stats from the 2022 end of year report. So there are four components to the crisis intervention unit and that's training, our field unit, the CIT liaison program and the working group, the CIT working group. Um, now, as we, forgive me, as we look at more specifically the, the training stats from 2022, you can see that 77% of patrol is trained on the CIT um, mental health four-day certification course. You can also see on that, uh, over to the right-hand side, that 100% of patrol is trained on our one-day CIT field tactics course. Um, and while it's not here in the slide, since we are here today, um, we do have the numbers from uh, January until the uh, very beginning of October on these training stats. So these numbers, of course, can fluctuate based off of retirements, promotions, transfers, and when we look at the numbers from the end of, the, end of the, uh, the 2022 calendar year, and we look then at the stats that we have now, it's clear that we've lost um, patrol officers in patrol. We've lost um, just personnel in general across the board. Um, but the percentage trained at the district stations stays the same at 77%. Um, and I just wanna highlight a few of the stations who are doing a phenomenal job at somehow navigating patrol duties and still sending officers to training. And those stations would be Central Station, Northern, Terravel, and the airport. And I will say that Terravel is seven bodies away from being 100% trained. So they are right on the, on the cusp. Um, in addition to these trainings for our own agency, we actually conduct trainings for outside uh, law enforcement organizations as well, and that includes Golden Gate Bridge Patrol, the uh, uh, UCSF, USF, US Park Police, our own Sheriff's Department. We've recently had adult probation come in as well. We do trainings for um, programs like Alert, and we even conduct trainings for our uh, 
civilian um, organizations out um, in the city, which would include um, organizations from hotels to stores, security, their regular day-to-day -day staff, because they are obviously faced with a lot of these calls for service um, within their establishments, and that is always a, obviously a concern for them as well. Um, we have done presentations for the for UC Berkeley's uh, business negotiations course as well. So we do that on a on a yearly basis. We've done that for a couple years in a row. Um, and recently, we received a call from I'm going to say this correctly. I think it's Gwinnett County Sheriff's Department, located in Lawrenceville, Virginia. Uh, sorry, Lawrenceville, Georgia. They are coming out to training our CIT training next week. So we're very excited to have them. As we can see, there's an there's an overreach. Our, our department and our training and our program is getting further out there, so other agencies from other states are beginning to call us as well. So that's great news. I'm gonna pass this, the next couple of components over to Officer Prillinger. Good evening, I'm Officer Prillinger. Um, I first wanted to say that uh, one of the most important aspects of the program is the CIT field unit. Um, it's comprised of three officers, Officer Carlos Manfredi, Officer Matt Nazar, and me. And what we do is we actually go out in the field with clinicians from DPH, specifically comprehensive crisis services. And this is part of a really visionary co-responder model that was actually implemented in 2018 by Lieutenant Mario Molina. And I want to say that we are primarily concerned with the safe effective and compassionate engagement of subjects in crisis, particularly those who've already demonstrated some acts of violence or danger potential, um, a public safety concern, and who also have perhaps a mental health component woven into their behavior. Part of what our chief objective is, is to give a safe avenue of approach for the clinicians to literally and figuratively, figuratively meet people where they're at out in the field. And so what we do prior to each field visit is we actually conduct a safety plan, we conduct a pace plan, and we debrief afterwards to understand the positives and negatives of where we can learn and improve. And part of this just moves towards that collaborative focus of working proactively and preventatively to really help people, specifically those who are in crisis. Another really important aspect of what we do at the field unit is we actually do 100% of the follow-ups and mental health intel support to all the active hostage and crisis negotiation incidents that occur in San Francisco annually. This is really important because H&T callouts um, really represent the top tier or the apex of most concerning crisis incidents in the city. Um, these are your barricaded uh, subjects. These are your suicidal subjects with weapons. These are you know, critical incidents oftentimes. And so for negotiators to get top quality, thorough information that can help them negotiate so that we can avoid use of force, so that we can effectively resolve things safely is absolutely essential. And if you look at the statistics, where this is really important is that if you look at 2019, the active H&T callouts were uh, at 36 for the year. In 2020 and 2021, these were 
approximately 78 and 80 respectively, which indicated almost double during the height of COVID. In 2022, we closed out at 94 formal hostage crisis negotiation callouts, and we are well on that trend for this year, um, perhaps exceeding that. And what this means is that the need for competent crisis intervention competent crisis negotiations is absolutely essential to our police department. And thank you so much to Chief Scott for always being so supportive of our program and really creating the best training, I think, nationwide with, with regards to this type of work. Another aspect of um, where uh, our CIT unit really grows is our relationship with patrol. We have what they call a CIT liaison program, and what that is is um, an operational design that really helps us relate to what's happening on at the district level. So there's two personnel at each, each district station assigned to take on the auxiliary responsibilities of crisis issues. And this kind of... In, uh, enables officers to resolve lower level crisis situations, but it also encourages them to identify really concerning crisis issues that might be evolving and they notify us, we get ahead of it. And again, this is towards that spirit of working proactively and preventatively so that we can you know, deter any type of tragedy in the community. So again, the CIT liaison program at the patrol level is absolutely a huge part of our program. Back to you, Sergeant. So the final component of our, um, our, pro of our program, of our unit, is the work with the CIT working group. This, the CIT working group, alongside the SFPD CIT unit is the essence of collaborative reform. We are continually um, relying on them for their input um, and for their support. They are enormous advocates of our program, of our training, um, and some of them, some, not all, but some of the members of the working group are DPA, of course, the Mental Health Association, NAMI, the City Attorney's Office, uh, Department of Public Health, and um, ASCEND, as well as clinicians who specialize in first responder care, which is incredibly important as well. So we are lucky to have them here um, in this organization with us, and we meet with them every month. Uh, and we, of course, always welcome the commissioners to attend these meetings and, and be a part of it as well. Uh, so we'll be sure if anyone is interested to make sure to pass that information along so that you can also attend these meetings. Um, I'm gonna pass it very quickly back to Officer Prelinger. Yes, I'm back again. Um, <laughs> in front of you, you have a map of San Francisco. And if you look at this map, every single small dot represents one mental health detention that occurred in 2022. Um, if you count them all, it's gonna be 2,308. Um, this is especially important to look at this as a visual representative of just how much crisis impacts the communities in San Francisco. Um, and again, mental health detentions are kind of at the apex of a crisis incident because you're involving danger to self, danger to others, and gravely dis disabled subjects. And so because oftentimes there is a danger component, it's really important that our first responders, specifically police, 
are well equipped to be able to identify how to engage people effectively. So this map really does also just shine a tremendous light on why crisis intervention is so important to our department. And then as we look at these last few slides, we're going to look at stats from last year. So I'm going to make sure we're on the correct slide. So the total calls for service involving mental health and well-being checks for 2022 was almost 40,000 calls for service. Um, and while we certainly appreciate all of the other organizations and programs and our city partners who also have these non-law enforcement response teams, our officers, our patrol officers are still responding to this amount of calls roughly every year. Um, and just to give you an idea, from January until the end of September this year, we are currently at 25,527 calls, which certainly puts us on track to um, hit well over 30,000 again for this year. So I just want to bring attention to that. Now, as we look at the next slide, um, we can see that there are 333 use of force, um, uh, use of force um, incidents involving mental health calls for service. Now, within that 333, 285 of those are simply control holds. The remaining 48 are those that you see that are using actual force of some type, takedowns, the extended range impact weapon, leg sweeps, OC deployment. Um, but doing the math, and I think we did the math correctly, that equates to 0.001% of calls for service out of that 40,000 calls total. Um, so. In terms of who are we seeing out there, the, you can see here it'll, we have Lieutenant Molina added stats on the subject's race and age. The majority of our subjects are actually male and um, fall into the age range between 30 and 40. Um, and then as we look at the injuries, so out of that 333, 306 of those subjects had no injury and no complaint of pain. Uh, 27 had some uh, complaint of pain, minor injuries, or minor, minor visible injuries. And then in our last slide, you can see that the, the subjects that when, other than unknown, because oftentimes we don't have that information, it's not provided to us for whatever reason in the moment, it's not gathered. But when we take that out of the equation, we do show that 179 of our subjects that we come into contact with are housed. And the larger majority of our calls for service come from dispatch, which poses an, a unique issue for patrol officers because we, the reality is there's not always information that comes in that is complete or even accurate. So they're responding to these calls for service, um, sometimes almost in the blind. Um, with that said, I, that's the end of the, the PowerPoint, but if I may, I want to just acknowledge the, the team that I have here behind me. Every member, every officer in our unit is a hostage negotiator, hostage crisis negotiator, um, with a, an amazing amount of experience. Um, and we're very lucky. It's, it's, not, it's no mistake to have this group of officers in this unit because 
the negotiators have a skill set that is that above the average CIT trained officer in patrol. So we're thrilled to have them with us. And I also just want to say, I would be remiss if we did not mention Lieutenant Molina as our fearless leader has volunteered to take a role elsewhere. We miss him tremendously. It is because of him that we are where we are with this unit and he has forged relationships with all of our partner city agencies, with mental health organizations, with private hospitals, um, and has created the unit that we see here today. So while he is um, enjoying his new assignment, we have him on retainer, so to speak, and we do bother him regularly as a consultant. So, but I wanna thank him so much because he's the reason why this unit is what it is today. We're happy to answer any questions. Thank you both so much for the presentation, um, and, and thank you also to all the CIT uh, team members in attendance today um, and, and for the vital work that you do. I, I have to say, I, I learned some new things today about what your team does. I, I didn't realize the full scope of what you take on, um, and I'm just curious, what is the total size of the team? Uh, there are four of us in the unit. For to total sworn officers? Correct. And, and any non-sworn? No. No. Okay. Um, does four officers, uh, that sounds like a lot of work for four officers. Um, um, does that, are you able to meet all the demand for your services? No, we're, we're not. And with that said, all of the units and all of the district stations are short. And I can imagine that none of them are able to meet the demands um, as we are down. I think that certainly the chief could speak better to this, but I think roughly 600 officers. Um, and so we have taken a hit, I think, across the board in the department. Um, we do manage to make things work. At times, um, field visits with the Department of Public Health are not, um, we're not able to conduct that in real time, but instead have to um, schedule them out for maybe the following week when we have when we have enough staffing, when we have a clear calendar. Um, trainings come into play, of course. We have a training next week. I'm gonna need all hands on deck for the training. So it, it does become tight, but I will say this, that we recently had visitors from Perth, Australia, and from the London Metropolitan Police Department, um, and that, that was a chief inspector whose main um, assignment was the security at Buckingham Palace. And so he came out to do, um, to check out some, they both came out to check out trainings and to do a ride along with our team members. And I think Lily can kind of speak to their, um, their assessment of what we do. Thank you very much, Sergeant. Um, yeah, it was actually quite a profound encounter. Um, when we, uh, facilitated his interest in coming to see our unit. Um, he shared with us that he had actually uh, kind of been researching online and he had come up with material related to SFPD and he was so struck by the high concept design and the implementation of great ideas that he was like, I wanna check this out. And so he made it possible and uh, the clinicians over at Comprehensive Crisis actually opened their doors. We had a big roundtable discussion. 
And it was very moving because afterwards, you know, this is somebody super high level associated with an immense landmark overseas. And he's like, um, I'm blown away. He said, where I work, we have so many resources, but we don't have anything like this. And I said, you know, that's so interesting because we have very limited resources, but we have great people. We have great people who care. We have great people who really work towards getting great ideas out there and trying to make things better. And so it was a wonderful feedback from him that he was so impressed with our unit, and yet he was so surprised at um, you know, the very limited uh, number of folks associated with the unit specifically. So it was a great compliment coming internationally, actually. Thanks. Yeah, that's great validation, and I also share his surprise. Um, just last question for me, uh, which you mentioned a training for, I think it was UC Berkeley's business negotiation class. Can you just talk, I, that was one thing I, I hadn't realized that you do those types of trainings for outside organizations. Can you just give a bit more color on that process and the types of organizations that, that reach out to us? Absolutely. We, um, we don't advertise our training um, simply because um, we can't accommodate the amount of requests that come in. However, people do hear word of mouth and reach out to our unit. So we have been asked a couple of times now, Lieutenant Anderson was also there and um, handled the training with us. Um, but oftentimes when you look at regular negotiations in, in law enforcement and in business, negoci business negotiations, a lot of the same techniques um, are the, they're, they're the same. They're the same throughout. And so there's a wonderful uh, professor over at uh, UC Berkeley who reached out and said, I would love for you to come in and speak to our my business class my, in business negotiations. So Lieutenant Anderson provided a PowerPoint um, on all of the topics covered in basically hostage negotiation 101 and gave examples of interactions and how to persuade people to you know come up with the decisions almost on their own but really kind of help guide them um, and so they they liked the presentation so much that they've they asked us back a second time and then they slotted us for a third time as well so um, Lieutenant Anderson could speak more to the actual presentation itself or can send you some documentation on that or we can get that to the commission. Great. Thank you. Uh, Director Henderson. Great. I just had a comment. I didn't really have a question. I just wanted to point out that even though you guys, uh, it's only four people in that unit, this presentation was extremely helpful, but I want to be very specific about why this is a very good presentation from the department. The level of detail that was included for this presentation, as well as the analysis, is really important for the commission and for the public to see, as well as the transparency. It's an excellent representation in terms of the reporting that goes through or that comes to the commission. And I'll specifically say the things uh, interpreting, uh, explaining, like what a blind response is related to the data that's being presented, the inclusion of race statistics and numbers and your interpretation of the numbers of what happens if you remove these numbers or look at it this way is exactly the kind of information that I think the commission and the public appreciates to understand the significant amount of work and what gets done 
um, especially for reporting purposes. It's not lost on me that there's only four people in that unit, and yet you're able to deliver this and at a very high level. So thank you for this report and your ongoing work. Oh. Thank you. And I just I see that uh, Ms. Kaywood is um, coming up here as well. And um, we have worked with, of course, DPA and specifically with Ms. Kaywood on policy and 5.24, 6.14, 702. Um, and so we're, we're grateful for the collaboration as well. If it results in stuff like this, then more of this. Yes. More like this. Yes, thank you. Excuse me. Uh, just, uh, I'm part of the, uh, I'm Janelle Kaywood, I'm the policy director at DPA, and I am part of the CIT working group, and I can't uh, say enough good things about this unit. They're wonderful people. They are the change we are looking for uh, within SFPD. They're collaborative kind, smart, and I, and I like to have, to see two, two women up here presenting. Um, and Sergeant Colleen's modest, but she's now, I think, the commanding officer of the unit. So uh, we are happy to have her. One thing that I think is overlooked is um, the amount of community policing this unit does. And, and this list was prepared uh, for a meeting that we had with Chief Scott, but uh, I think Lieutenant Molina prepared it. But this is some of the outside trainings that the CIT unit does in the community. Um, the SFHSH SRO providers, Westside Clinic, Behavioral Health Services, and SFDPH providers, Golden Gate Bridge Patrol, Yerba Buena Gardens Conservancy, the Ambassador Program, the Alert Program, Police Activities League, Cadet Program, the Progress Foundation and Providers, um, UCSF Fellow Program, Phil's Coffee Personnel, Hyatt Hotel Security Personnel, and Citywide Staff. So in addition to their normal duties, they're out there in the community doing the Lord's work. So we appreciate them so much. Thank you. And if I just, I failed to actually highlight Officer Prillinger. So um, I, the reason I asked her to co-present with me today is because she and Lieutenant Molina are the authors of the 2022 end of year report. So I believe in highlighting our personnel. And so I just wanted to point that out and thank her for all of her hard work, as well as Officers Manfredi and Nazar. Thank you. Great. Uh, Commissioner Walker. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for this report and for the amazing work you do. There's, um, there's so much that the, the public especially sees that this responds to, and we, you know, we really need this more than ever. I have a, a couple of questions specifically about the, um, the working with other departments, because um, I would imagine that most of these don't end up being arrested and transported. So is there a good connection of where folks, I mean, do, do you, do we have the results of these type of, of incident where you're present? What happens next? Um, is that your department or is that more? Commissioner, are you speaking of um, what happens when we, when we do a handoff to another yes. organization? Yes. So, um, we're in the process of trying to formulate a dashboard that would collect those Good. that data through our business intelligence unit. Um, we're working closely with them as well. They're part of the working group. Um, and I will say this, that um, Chief Sloan over at SCRT has been phenomenal at collaborating and coordinating with us. 
you know, there are, there are so many restrictions when it comes to HIPAA. Um, however, based off of the crisis clause in HIPAA, it allows these, it allows the clinicians and it allows us uh, with SCRT to coordinate proper care when a subject does meet that crisis clause and they are able to share information with us. And I will say that in um, call, previous calls where I know that officers um, Perlinger and Manfredi went out to, we actually were able to ask Chief Sloan to coordinate a response from the fire department's end and together yeah. both our officers in our unit and the fire department, a rescue captain and an um, ambulance were sent to coordinate this with CCS. And I, I actually appreciate you bringing that question up because I think in a perfect world where we had more than our number of staffing, um, as we've looked into it, members of our unit have looked into this, we have yet to find a unit where CIT, where the police department CIT, a program like SCRT, mm -hmm. and the Department of Public Health have a joint, not only co-responder model, but a co-housed model where we actually sit under the same roof, where we do these multidisciplinary meetings and discuss a patient in crisis, and then immediately respond in real time. I think having a program like that down the road, and of course I've spoken to Lieutenant Molina about this. This has been a long time discussion within our unit. We have spoken to Chief Sloan. We have spoken to Director Felder over at DPH. Everyone is on board. It, having a, as we move, as we look at the future of crisis intervention, we really could be leading the way with a program of that nature right. um, as numbers allow as well. And I'm aware that DPH also, it's at Comprehensive Crisis Services, they don't have the numbers they need to create a unit like this just yet. Yeah. But, but as we look at the future. I think that's, that's really good to hear because I, you know, I, we're all, as we go to the ride-alongs and, and we end up having to wait for the next one in line to, to hand off, I mean, that's a, that's a really big deal. And I personally am really interested to help however I can in this because it's really, it's an important part. And I also think, I mean, it seems to me that as the city um, engages in the, um, the modifications around the care court and how that affects the next step, I mean, this is a, a really good opportunity uh, with this work that you're all doing to sort of fit in. Um, so it's a good time for us to help do that, not to... Um, intercede in hiring <laughs> hiring or person person assignment but uh, you know it's really it's important i think that there's so many moving parts that are all wonderfully designed at this point these different um programs the crt the, yours the hot teams all of those are out there as well as different entities on the street like the alchemy groups and the ambassador groups all of whom i'm sure could you know, participate and help and be helped by training and um, being engaged in this. I mean, they're all out there on the front lines, um, especially the working with the unhoused. Um, one of the the really interesting things is when we're looking at the the breakdown of unhoused housed. Um, I think specifically around the use of force. Um, do, do the statistics around that the percentages? Um, 
follow through to the total number of responses, unhoused, housed? I mean, if you look at this, this map, can we look at a, a similar sort of percentage around the use of force? I mean, I, that's a kind of complicated question, but so yes, so the so you're speaking specifically about the mental health detentions. Yes, yes, they fall into the these same. calls. For, yes, okay, great. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing. It's all over. I mean, clearly it's it's where the density is higher. There's more dots, but um, yes, you guys do amazing work, um, especially with the numbers that you have. So thank you, all of you. Thank you, uh, Commissioner Byrne. Uh, th thank you, uh, uh, Vice President Cardoverstone. Um, <clears throat> case four, and, and well, at one point first, I mean, when you look at the map that uh, Commissioner Walker brought up, I mean, you could put the bullseye, you could put the bullseye in the Tenderloin District. Would that be uh, fair to say? It would be fair. Um, and I will say this, we actually had this discussion in our unit um, earlier today. While the Calls for service are um, more frequent in our downtown stations. I don't want to forget the Golden Gate Division because it just so happens that when those calls for service come out, they tend to be more involved, um, larger scale calls for service, as opposed to the calls in the Metro Division. Uh, I, now, if the bullseye's in the tenderloin, um, then the the issue then about you know harm to, harm to themselves or harm to others, and many of us don't want to deal with uh, a, a number of people that are addicted to drugs. Is it fair to say also have mental health issues? I don't have the statistics, but I would say yes that having an organic mental health issue and substance use. Um, in many cases, go hand in hand. And in many of those cases, they could be definitely a harm to themselves, particularly as you put it, point out in case four uh, in, your, in your handout here. Um, people, that, um, people that continually overdose are clearly a harm to themselves. And does the crisis intervention team want to reach out to them on a mental health issue level because nobody in San Francisco wants to see any more people die from from overdoses and and clearly it is the seminal crisis in in San Francisco that that on average more than two people a day die from overdose and it seems to me that the city and, and, and indeed the police department need to more actively intervene. Now, I understand uh, a mental health of 5150 hold is what, 72 hours or is it? It is um, supposed to be 72 hours, yes. Right, and, and many times uh, those people are released. But, and certainly somebody that overdoses once, maybe even twice, that's one thing. But but when there's a pattern, I understand that the, the authorities may release, but it is an attempt, at least on behalf of the city and county of San Francisco, to try to save this individual's life. 
um, because there seems to be a propensity uh, for some people to continually overdose. And, you know, the Narcan isn't going to be there all the time. And I guess what I'm saying is that I certainly want to encourage amongst people because when I've walked the uh, uh, beat and been in, in the Tenderloin, a lot of the officers tend to know who, who, the, who the ones that are in, in trouble. I mean, that is the beauty of, of local policing and all that. And really, at the end of the day, and it may, be, it may sound tough, but at the end of the day, in, in many of those instances, a mental health hold would be appropriate. Would you not agree? Yes, yeah, so our officers are trained to specifically focus in on the presentation of the behaviors um, and not to, of course, diagnose, but to assess what they're seeing in front of them. So oftentimes, persons who are using substance or have substance use issues will be 5150'd and taken to a hospital. At the hospital, the doctors will do their assessment and determine whether or not the person has an organic mental health issue or a substance use issue. And we tend to see that when they determine that it's only a substance use issue, the person is released. Right. And, and, and I understand that. There's no, mm. there's no um, and as I said, I didn't say a statistic, but I said <laughs> many and not, mm-hmm. and I didn't even, you know, suggest. But it, with those people, um, um, this is the sort of thing, this is crisis intervention. Because at some stage, if there is a propensity to overdose, there's going to be a time when there's no Narcan, there is no one there to revive. And it, 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 would, be, it would be nice, even if it sounds, to, to do the 5150s, to try to, uh, you know, encourage the people to seek treatment. I, I'm not interested in charging drug addicts or people with, um, uh, with um, mental health problems criminally. But, I am, but when we talk about crisis intervention, there needs to be an attempt to try to get these people in treatment. And, and, and the use of the 5150 hold um, is appropriate in, in many instances. I have personally seen when a person is about to be evicted that the sheriff's office will bring a social worker, which that person is because the person has no place to go to. They will 5150 that person. I I was surprised that, that they would do that. And yet we will see in the Tenderloin people that clearly have mental health issues with the substance abuse problem and not having a 5150 hold placed on them. Maybe because there's too many, who knows. But I certainly want to encourage that to at least get a doctor to look at them, to make the evaluation. Because the current way that things are being done in San Francisco with are not working. And I know it's not, and it's unfair to say it's the police department's fault, because there's a number of city agencies that need to be involved in this. And as people have said, we're not going to arrest our way out of the problem. But the San Francisco Police Department is an important component 
in trying to prevent uh, overdoses of people. And I have witnessed people that have recovered uh, from their drug abuse and have been hugely uh, productive members of our society. Uh, and they will tell me that they got the second chance. And so I guess I'm encouraging more of that so that more people have the second chance. Anyway, thank you. Yes, thank you, Commissioner. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you very much, Mr. Vice President. Thank you for that presentation. Uh, a couple of questions. I was, uh, let me get to that slide. The 39,000 calls for service, do you know what percentage that represents of the overall calls of service SFPD responds to? I do not have the overall number. I actually just saw it the other day, but uh, did not make note of it. Okay, no problem. Um, I don't know if... Maybe if you could provide that to the chief, he can, he can give Absolutely. that in, in his next report. Because I think that would be interesting to just see uh, how much of, of, the, of the whole CIT is doing. Yes. Um, so looking at the training, it's really encouraging to see. I know we were here a, a number of years ago tr trying to get everyone the 10-hour. Now everyone's on the 10-hour. Now we're approaching 77% you know, of patrol on the 40-hour. Um, and I imagine the, the goal is to get all patrol on, on the 40-hour. Is, is there an approximate timeline where aspirationally and realistically you think that can be done? I did the numbers on that. And in fact, um, if I could have... In, and again, in a perfect world where we had enough staffing, if I could have 25 bodies um, from patrol in each class, we could get 100% of patrol trained in 10 classes. And how often are? Um, this year we had nine scheduled and we had to cancel three due okay. to promotional exams taking place. APEC is coming, so we had to sure. cancel the November class. Um, so we typically attempt to schedule anywhere from six to 10 per calendar year. Uh, even during, uh, right before COVID and right during COVID, we were um, looking at 10 to, 10 to 16 classes. Yeah. Um, it's just that as our numbers dwindled, we, we can't actually put students into the class as easily. So we do rely in order to and even have a class take place, we do rely on the outside agencies to come in and also sit in the class with us to make it worthwhile for the instructors. So 10 classes would be about a calendar year if, if, we could. if you had 25 in a class, you could do that. I, we can. And so given the resource constraints, it'll, it'll probably be some number more than that. Um, you know, we spent so many years focusing on getting everyone on the 10-hour, and let's say that we continue to keep our momentum up and get everyone on the 40-hour. What is the next big goal for the CIT unit in terms of what uh, elevates that next level after we get everyone on the 10-hour and everyone on the 40-hour? We would love to create an update course. We have one that's in the works. It's a two-day update course. Um, again, staffing levels um, amongst the department and of course within our own unit. Um, I have to say I did not know how much work Lieutenant Molina did um, <laughs> and so until I was sitting in the seat. So, um, and I'm also handling the training as well. So um, to be Double able- mining. Yes, so trying to coordinate that um, schedule and that timing um, is a bit challenging, but we are, we are looking at an update course and we have spoken to the CIT working group about that as well. I think that's a great idea. I know that's come up before this commission before because we'll have 
officers involved shootings or other incidents where we'll look and see, you know, officers are CIT trained, but sometimes it can become relevant as to whether their training was at the very beginning of this process and might be many, many years old. And so having an update course, I think, would be and like a regular cadence of, of that process, I think, is, is, is very valuable. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. We actually, there has been a significant change from um, the course when officers began taking it in 2011 versus where we are today. Um, so I, that was a, a portion, it was a component of creating a update course to make sure that those officers who took it early on had the additional information that officers now are receiving. And then I know that one thing that's been, I believe CIT, was it Nashville or Memphis that first pioneered CIT? Memphis. Memphis. And I believe in, in Memphis, in addition to their training, they also have sort of a dedicated CIT unit that sort of operates like TAC, but with CIT principles. And I know that's something we haven't been able to uh, necessarily implement here. Again, in, in a perfect world, uh, just based on your understanding of the principles, do you think that would uh, add value to have that for those sort of higher, uh, those cases you said that are more involved or have... Uh, significantly kind of more complex issues? Do you think that would be helpful to, to follow that, that model? Yes, Commissioner. I think in a, in a perfect world where, again, where staffing was not a non-issue, um, to have a unit where um, that was staffed seven days a week and could respond to real time to actual patrol calls. One of the, I think, one of the biggest challenges, I received a call today from a lieutenant at Northern Station. So one of the biggest challenges is that these calls are time consuming for patrol. But if we had the ability and the staffing in our unit to be able to respond out to those calls in place of patrol, that I think would ultimately free up patrol to handle other calls for service. But again, you know, our, our staffing levels across the board, sure. there's really, we're, we're sort of stuck right now. Yeah, I think that's something that's worth continuing to talk about because we've adopted and improved many of the, of the Memphis model of CIT, and I, I think that's a thing that had, they've seen a lot of success with, success with of having that unit, that dedicated unit to respond to calls. Do you think, I, I know you mentioned that uh, when looking at the mental health attentions map that, uh, you know, in that Gold Gate Division is where you have some of the more involved calls. Do you expect if we layered the 333 use of force incidents on this map that it, like, what would that look like? Oh, where would they think? fall? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be very, yes, I think it would be very random. Okay. Um, I, I don't think that there's in any one location. This is just circumstances of the individual incident, which, as we know in law enforcement, can change, you know, moment to moment. And then in general, use of force incidents are usually so infrequent that they tend not to be statistically right. um, Great. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. I do want to um, echo what uh, Director Henderson and Director Kaywood said and provide tremendous thanks and praise to the CIT unit, uh, to Lieutenant Molina, to Sergeant Colleen, Officer Prolinger, the, the whole unit. It's an incredible unit. Um, I was fortunate to attend the CIT Awards last year, which was one of the highlights of, of the events I've gotten to attend uh, on the commission. I highly recommend members of the public uh, not just look at the presentation, but look at the full report. It's posted on the commission website with the materials to this meeting. It is uh, lengthy, but it is very readable. It is clear and uh, is, is incredibly uh, educational. So I do want to uh, recommend that. Uh, also, kudos to the, the CIT working group, uh, which on top of all the things described here also help with our policy development. I know they advised on the disengagement policy. I know they advise on other DGOs. So uh, they're also talent talented policy writers uh, among that. So thank you very much for that presentation and for, for all the work you do.
with only four people in the unit. Only four people, absolutely. report like this as a wonderful model again. <laughs> Thank you. Commissioner Yee. Thank you very much there, uh, Vice President Carter Overson. Uh, first off, I want to thank the C CIT team for your outstanding service and congratulations to the chief for bringing this out there. Um, there's so much work that you got out there with the limited resource that you have. I just want to ask a question. How many more staff do you figure you need to make it uh, a more effective unit? Well, I think that would depend on the amount of staffing that we had. Um, that that, that wasn't my question. In the department. How much do you need? I, I know that that has been a discussion with the chief, and I think that to answer that question, we I ideally would look at having you know a, f a few officers working each day for the for a seven day period. Um, so, you know, we currently have officers Prillinger, Manfredi, and Nazar working either Monday through Thursday or Tuesday through Friday because we do want to ensure that our officers actually are, from our unit go out um, as a set, as a pair, uh, in order to in ensure the safety of not only the subject we're encountering, but now when we go out, we're bringing a clinician with us. So we can't, not one officer can possibly <coughs> ensure that the subject is going to be cooperative and monitor the safety of the clinician, um, which is why we go out together so that to ensure that, that a safety component, there's a safety net there literally for our clinicians. Uh, ne my next question is uh, regarding the 40 hours uh, uh, CIT certification. I look at the command staff from the sergeant on, on up. How many more do we need to, I guess, fully train them as needed out in the field. In in patrol, we we are uh, if we complete another 250, everyone will be trained. From the command staff up to. Uh, that's just the patrol division. Um, we have another breakdown which is not included uh, here okay. today, which I can get to you. But there is a breakdown of who from officer um, to Chief Scott is trained. Okay. Uh, thanks again to the team the chief and the members and everybody that makes it work. Uh, sometimes we don't hear it enough. Sometimes we hear the other side of the story, which is that we're not doing enough in the SFPD. Again, this is great news. I guess we need to probably let the press know that, uh, take a look at this report um, and then publish it maybe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Chief Scott. Thank you, Vice uh, President Carter Overstone. Um, I just wanted to say thanks first to Sergeant Colleen, Acting Lieutenant Colleen. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Molina was uh, needed to be the acting, one of the acting night captains, and Laura stepped right in and uh, without skipping a beat. I also want to say thank you to Lieutenant Anderson, who uh, even since he's been promoted still contributes a lot to this unit and to this effort and help you know put all this on the map so Donnie thank you also officer Carlos Manfredi sitting there Carlos if you would raise your hand <laughs> who's a vital part of the team and officer Matt Nazar um, they are a small unit and it's it's painful to to know that we can't do more right now in addition to everything that's been said here they also get pulled or they were getting pulled to backfield patrol um, and 
But what I will say to them is they are um, synergetic in, with their, their training and promoting these concepts among the general patrol force, and I think that helps us get to where, we're, where we are and will help us in the future. But just know this, you know, our academy classes are larger than they have been in the last few years. We have another academy class that just started this month. So as we start to staff back up, and I know that's going to take time, we will increase the size of this unit. Uh, Sergeant Colleen mentioned this, or Acting Lieutenant Colleen. We are short across the board. Our motorcycle officers, our narcotics unit, I don't think any unit right now is fully staffed with the exception of maybe the Tenderloin Station. But we know that and we'll continue to make adjustments and um, try to stay afloat until we can get that unit staffed up. So thank you. Great, thank you so much. Thank uh, you. Sergeant, could we go to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, the CIT presentation, please approach the podium. Um, I'm aware of the, the Q&A protocol of public comment, but it would be from a neighborhood perspective, it would be uh, revealing to understand better the relationship between the CIT unit and the CIT trained officers on the one hand and the handful or less, I guess, of crisis response vehicles that do not have an SFPD officer on board that I gather are essentially run by the health department, but I'm unclear on, on that last point. Thanks. Uh, to your question, Com uh, Commissioner Benedicto, 400 and approximately 428,000 calls for service for the year of 2022. So about a little less than one in 10 uh, uh, for, for the, about 40,000 for the CIT. Yeah, about, okay. about that ratio. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. And there is no further public comment. Line item eight, presentation and discussion on SFPD and DPA Sparks Report, third quarter 2023, discussion. And for members of the public, just one note that the um, uh, PowerPoint for the SFPD, um, the presentation has not been posted online because it was not available on Friday at the time of posting. Commission staff will make this item available for the public by tomorrow and hard copies are available on the table on the side. Good evening. My name is Aja Steves. I am the Policy Development Division Manager for SFPD. I am joined here by my boss, Captain Dennis Toomer, who will be uh, advancing the slides for today. Um, we're here to talk about the Q3 Sparks Report, which you have received from SFPD. Ours is essentially a spreadsheet that covers all of the items that are required in a uh, resolution that um, actually DPA and SFPD must comply with. First slide, thank you. So in our report, we have uh, presented you with status updates on 33 DGOs that are actively going through the development process. Again, this is Q3, so this is July through September 30 activity. Uh, and we also have given you department bulletin notices, status updates on 49 of them that's set to expire within 120 days. Now that is criteria, again, that is outlined in the resolution that was passed in 2006. 
Uh, we do call it Sparks because the commissioner Sparks. It was uh, her her resolution. Essentially, the commission at the time was having challenges receiving regular updates from both the department and from DPA, uh, as their function, commission's function, is to monitor and oversee policy updates. So we're uh, complying with that. And as you've noticed, there is a, you know, this year we've presented you with a pretty new format. So our hope really going forward is that we're able to provide you with consistently clear data relating to policy development updates so that this eventually lands on the consent calendar. Next slide, please. Uh, we've added a section in this report that covers DPA recommendations from their Q2 Sparks report. Um, we think it's important to actually, because DPA is providing us with recommendations, we should add our responses to those recommendations so we can remain accountable and transparent. So our hope really is to, with every quarterly report where DPA provides us with recommendations, our next quarterly report, we hope to provide some substantive responses so that the commission and DPA are aware of what our position is. Uh, it is next to impossible to answer those questions right on the spot because we have to be thoughtful. We have to um, usually confer with other units, confer with the chief, uh, command staff, so we'd like to actually get that documented too so that we have again ongoing documentation of our responses to DPA recommendations. So in this report those recommendation responses can be found starting on page eight. So again so the Q4 SFPD Sparks report let's can go back just one more the last uh, bullet of that is the Q4 SFPD Sparks report will include responses to the recommendations noted in DPA's Q3 Sparks report, so the one that they are going to discuss today. We hope to have responses going forward, and we want to do that ongoing. Next slide, please. Thank you. So I also want to provide, this is not in your uh, Sparks report, but want to give you some policy development division updates. So the policy development division, PDD, was established back in May 2023. We are a division that includes written directives unit, the policy development unit, which is our kind of staff writers, and uh, our working group unit, which will manage all of the facilitation of the working groups on the list that will uh, be approved by the commission. We have brought on two written directives unit staff members, one in July and one in August, three policy development unit staff members all in August, and one working group unit staff member that just started on Monday. So we've been doing DGO 301 workshops with internal staff. We started that work back in May of this year. Uh, and we've been doing onboarding sessions with commissioners as well as internal onboarding um, sessions. I do wanna take this moment to thank Commissioner Walker, Commissioner Benedicto, and Carter Oberstone for volunteering your time and sitting with us for a very large chunk of time to go through how to practically apply um, the guidelines as set forth in DGO 301. And Commissioner Yi and Byrne, we have some invitations out for you to join us at future onboarding sessions and Elias when she comes back as well. So we hope to keep you in the fold. Uh, you're part of the conversations and we, again, we're really grateful that you spent this time with the PDD staff so that they can also interact with you directly. It's, it's really, really helpful. Um, so our goal is to have standardized processes and centralized tracking. Surprise, there hasn't been up until now when it comes to policy development because it has been largely decentralized uh, until, I guess, May of when we were established. 
Uh, we've also worked on a policy development assessment report, and we're getting that finalized and sent to the chief. That has 24 uh, findings and recommendations relating to how policy development has been working up until now and the recommendations that we have as a division to the department on how to keep the policy development uh, process efficient. So our other goals is to have a 2024 annual DGO review list to the chief and the president of the commission in November. And that will give them time, at least November and December, to approve that list so we can set our annual refresh plan for 2024 before the year starts. And in 2024, we want to get that working group list review in front of the full commission in January 2024. So in DGO 301, uh, that list, the working group list, is approved by the full commission at a, at a hearing. So we're hoping to get that to you, again, very early in the year so we can hit the ground running and start these working groups um, in hopefully in February. And our next Q4 Sparks report is due in January. So that will cover October through December 2023 data. And again, we're really hoping to get that Sparks report so clear that it's on consent calendar and we don't have to do presentations. But of course, we're here if you want one. Next slide, please. Uh, we were able to review the uh, DPA Q3 Sparks report. We just wanted to make a quick note that Section 3 outlines several DGOs, which actually ends up being a, a comprehensive list of about 11 DGOs, and six of those 11 are noted in our Sparks report. So we have status updates in our Sparks report. So what's noted in their report is DGO 506. You can find the status update on page 1, line 4. For DGO 207, you can find our status update on page 2, line 11, and so forth. Um, so also DGO 905, page 3, line 28. Uh, DGO 618, page 3, line 32. And there's an update on DGO 610 on page 8 in the recommendations section where we're responsive to DPA recommendations from Q3. Uh, five of the 11 DG updates can be provided to the commission through Q4 Sparks Report, because we will have updates, um, or through Sergeant Youngblood. So if at any time you have questions about the update, and I heard you, Commissioner Benedicto, wanting some updates on your DGOs that you're assigned to, this applies to any other commissioner, uh, you can certainly reach out to Sergeant Youngblood, ask that question, Sergeant Youngblood can come to us and we can provide you with that update, or you can directly reach out to Captain Toomer and we can provide those updates to you. Uh, if, if you can't wait for the Q4 snazzy report that's coming your way. Um, so we do have updates on a lot of those things that, you know, if no particular activity happened in this, Q, this last Q3, we may not have reported on it, but a few of those DGOs that are on that list, we also did a report on Q2, and again, expect Q4. Uh, so next steps, we will continue our onboarding sessions with staff as we are still bringing people on, just brought on the working group uh, person. So we're really, we're still moving along with training. I think training is really, really critical to making sure that we get this process correct and also kind of review of the, um, the, the assessment report for the chief. We're really looking forward to the chief's review and seeing what his comments are so we can move forward. Um, next slide. And I'm assuming we should take questions after DPA. Okay, so we will move aside so DPA can get started on theirs, and then we'll take your questions after the DPA presentation. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I 
Good evening, commissioners, Chief Scott, members of the public. I'm Janelle Kaywood. I'm the DPA policy director, and I'm here to report on DPA's third quarter 2023 policy work. Next slide. For approximately one year, DPA has been raising concerns about possible inaccuracies in SFPD stop data. And just as a background for members of the public, uh, the California Racial and Identity Profiling Act uh, took effect on January 1, 2016. It's called RIPA. Um, in the RIPA statute, the state enacted multiple provisions to uncover and address the unlawful practice of racial profiling and identity profiling. And as an example, RIPA specifically provided that the consideration of a person's personal characteristics such as race cannot be the basis for deciding when to stop or how to treat a stopped person. So RIPA requires, and its related regulations, requires police officers to enter the perceived race of people they stop so the data can be reviewed for biased policing. In the third quarter of 2023, uh, Director Henderson publicly reported that we've noticed three issues which could affect SFPD stop data reliability. The first is officers entering multiple race categories, up to seven for a single person to obscure, possibly obscure the race of the person stopped. Number two, officers failing to enter large number of their traffic stops in the stop data system. And number three, officers entering the wrong race of known persons they've stopped. And to be clear, all three issues should have been discovered by SFPD through routine audits of its own stop data, just as the US Department of Justice recommended they do in 2016. This is important data to collect that is mandated by law. It has absolutely no value if it's not reliable and validated. So as a result of our preliminary findings, DPA has called for an external review of SFPD traffic stop data to determine the discrepancies uh, that DPA highlighted, whether they are isolated incidents or uh, more pervasive and systemic discrepancies. DPA is aware of several jurisdictions around the country where law enforcement stop data is under scrutiny for similar race-related errors. In 2021, deputies in Louisiana reported making six stops of Hispanic drivers out of 73,000 total stops. For context, the population is approximately 18% Hispanic. In 2022, a Missouri state trooper pleaded guilty to 12 counts of falsifying stop reports. The trooper recorded, reported black drivers as white and failed to report searches he conducted. In Los Angeles in 2022, the County Inspector General reported massive discrepancies in the stop data reporting. They estimated uh, over 50,000, that there were over 50,000 unreported stops, including over 33,000 of underreported stops of Hispanic people, and over 25,000 underreported backseat detentions, and over 18,000 underreported consent searches. Earlier this year, the Connecticut State Auditor released a report alleging that Connecticut State Troopers placed 26,000 fake infraction records in the state racial profiling system. Almost all of the false tickets purported that the drivers were white. Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice and the U.S. Department of Transportation have taken over the state investigations. Next slide. At this time, it is essential that San Francisco exhibit leadership on this issue and take the necessary steps to determine the scale and scope of our stop data discrepancies. To that end, DPA has made the below recommendations to SFPD. 
Number one, SFPD should convene a working group with SFPD, DPA, academic partners, and data experts, uh, such as Chris Bolton, who I believe the chief met with last year, to determine the purpose and scope of, of, of a stop data review. Number two, SFPD should allow DPA to work with the controller's office and or academic partners to conduct a, a review of SFPD stop data. Number three, SFPD's Special Investigations Unit should audit all stop data entries with general checks on data quality, uh, compare the stop data against other databases, such as citations or CAD, which are the dispatch records. Um, each citation and arrest should have a corresponding stop data entry. Additionally, each uh, stop data entry for citation or arrest should generate documentation. And we also want to check for whether officers have platform fatigue. They're uh, required to enter data in a lot of different ways, so we want to make sure that the SFPD systems are up to date to lower the administrative burden on officers. Um, we, re we recommend that SIU check for mis misstatements of facts for citations and arrests and compare race data in the stop data entries to citations and incident reports. Next slide. So that's all I have on stop data. Uh, turning to the general order revisions. So on July 13th, 2022, over a year ago, DPA publicly reported on 26 department general orders that we identified as languishing or having stalled for one year or more midway through the development process. So one year later, we have an annual update. And just as background, in 2016, the Department of Justice found that the SFPD DGO development process was overly protracted and directed SFPD and the police commission to make a process that is nimbler and more efficient. So kudos to President Elias, uh, SFPD's policy, policy director, Deanna Aroche, and Chief Scott for their leadership in DGO 3.01. Because of this policy, SFPD has produced more updated general orders in the last year than by my count than they have in 30 years. And so best practices is to update it every three to five years. So the department really um, has done just incredible work in the last year. And I just like, would like to acknowledge Lieutenant Eric Altoffer, who really got the ball going in last August from November last year. And also uh, hats off to Captain Toomer and Aja Steves for keeping the ball rolling into the third quarter of this year. Like overall, there's been major movement in, in the past year and it's great to see. Regarding the list of the 26 stalled DGOs, I'm happy to report that 12 have been either finally adopted by the police commission or in meet and confer with the POA. And I think all but one of those have been uh, submitted this year. So that's great progress. Um, four, 14, I call them the final 14. Uh, they were, they're still pending and I presented a table from DPA's perspective of what the status is. And I think um, Commissioner Byrne gets the award for most engaged commissioner on the status of his DGOs. So thank you, sir, for that. Um, but despite that 3.01 has been in effect for a year, some of these DGOs have stalled for five to seven months, which is problematic because under 3.01, the entire DGO development process should take about six months. Um, I, I did have an encouraging conversation with Assistant Chief Flaherty yesterday and sort of we identified pinch points and pain points in the process where um, DGOs were stalling and she has a good plan uh, with her team with Captain Toomer and Aja Steves to sort of 
hopefully address why some of these DGOs are stalling out at certain um, on certain desks. Um, but I'm happy to report that there's a plan in place and hopefully we'll prevent similar de delays with newer DGOs. Um, to address some of the delays in the pending DGOs, if you just scroll through the table, some of them have been stalled out with little movement for three to seven months. Um, and we've made some recommendations about how to move some of these DGOs forward. Uh, DPA and SFPD should confer and like proactively insert all of the DGOs into the 3.01 process at a place where it makes sense. If there's already a draft, let's start it at stage two, or if the policy's already been updated with DPA recommendations, let's just proceed to public comment. And then once the DGO is inserted in, into 3.01 at a reasonable spot, then the DGO will be subject to tracking and accountability by the commission. Um, we also recommended that SFPD not interpret 3.01 to have lengthy delays between the stages where DGOs stall out. Uh, our opinion is the stages should be consecutive. Um, and instead of allowing draft DGOs to go into sort of a black hole of a whirlpool of time in between stages, or when a DGO finishes concurrence, our recommendation is that um, instead of just letting a DGO stall out, that 3.01 be followed and that the department ask the commission for an extension of time so that, there, so that there's transparency and accountability about what's happening with the DGOs around the cause of the de delays. So, um, that's all I have. I did wanna address uh, Ms. Steve's responses to the DPA recommendations, which I appreciate. So often our recommendations, uh, we don't feel we're fully heard, so I really appreciate that new process. For most of them, for most of those recommendations, uh, we provided them to the commission, um, but they're still early in the 3.01 process. So I, uh, while we appreciate a response from the police department right now, it's certainly not necessary because it has to go through concurrence and then commission approval. So um, it's good to know where they preliminarily stand, but ultimately uh, we're, it's, early on in the 3.01 process. And I just wanted to express appreciation for the issue about um, DPA having access to uh, evidence.com, which is the body-worn camera uh, viewing platform uh, that SFPD has. Um, and I just wanted to address the response there. There seems to be a misunderstanding. Um, DPA has never requested CLETS access through, um, through evidence.com. The department can do all whatever redactions it needs to do and then just provide us uh, the, the body-worn camera after they're redacted. So the first part of uh, SFPD's response, I just wanted to clear up any confusion because we we're not asking for CLETS information. So thank you. That's all I have. And um, thanks to the policy unit SFPD for their clear report. Uh, Director Henderson. Thank you. I just to clarify two things, uh, just from what you presented, Ms. Kayward. Uh, so in this notice uh, of the 14 uh, languishing DGOs that haven't been resolved yet, two of them uh, indicate that they're pending with DPA, the duties of patrol officers and duties of station personnel. Are those still with? I still have those. I requested and received an extension till next week because I need to confer with uh, Ms. Hawkins, the photos. Got it. And, and then the, you, you said in, when you were presenting that um, one of the recommendations was that these, the languishing DGOs, 
be inserted into the 3.01 process? Is there a reason that they're not under, how are they an exception to 3.01? I, I just don't have that information. I did ask Captain Toomer last week if he could provide like a list of where all the DG, DGOs are at in 3.1 and I haven't received that list yet. So they might know in their mind, but I just, um, I don't, I don't see, I don't have a clear understanding of where all of the DGOs are under 3.01 for the final 14 and just other DGOs that we're working on. Do we, can I ask them? Oh, yeah. Thank you for the question. Because um, it's been quite a, an interesting journey going through the policy development process uh, after inheriting it in May. So going through, and as I've said in my report, we don't have a central, we didn't have a centralized tracking system. So each geo had its own update process or tracking mechanism. There wasn't one document to track everything. And what's become abundantly clear is that the majority of the DGOs that have been updated over the last year, um, based on agreements that were made between, actually there were some individual commissioners DPA and at the time where written directives was housed to develop under what they called old DGO 301. And there wasn't a purposeful, um, thoughtful process, at least that I can see from the crons. I'm just looking at the chronologicals in each one uh, and some of the discussions that I've had with Strategic Management Bureau and Lieutenant Altiver um, that we were as a department and in, in joint agreement to move forward because it was looked at as challenging to start with the new 301 for implementation when, to Janelle's point, certain DGOs had already gone through certain processes. Um, but in now that we are assessing those items that are in development and we're going back to the subject matter experts and the deputy chiefs, because some of the drafts are almost two years old, they're opting to start at stage one and start over. So while that is, I understandably, a delay, it's better than going under a DGO that no longer exists and hasn't existed since Ju July of 2022. Was the decision to scrap the process and start from the beginning, was that just made by the department? So actually, we're going through an individual process. Essentially, we're going through, now that we have a centralized list, now, so the first step was getting all of the geos that are actively uh, going through development on one list so we can see it, and then seeing where it is. Some are so complete that the only logical next step is public comment, right? And then some are, the deputy chief has just moved over to that uh, bureau and has reviewed the draft, and it maybe only received one grid from DPA, um, but there was, uh, or it may have gone to concurrence even. There are some that have already even gone to concurrence in 2021 and 2022, and that have now started back over uh, in I'm the back. process. Maybe right. a law changed or something. So it's really going uh, individually. They all have their own place in current 301. Would it be possible to get an update on the 14 on where they are? Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. We can provide that to you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both for the presentations. I'll just pick up where Director Henderson left off for, for Ms. Steve. So just to be clear, it, it is the department's position or your understanding that if a DGO was in the middle of being revised when 3.01 became effective, the new 3.01, that that DGO needs to follow the current 3.01 process? Yes. And then I didn't hear an answer to Director Henderson's question was the decision about where to slot one of these DGOs 
where to slot it in the new 3.01? Was that made by the department? So that's coming from PDD. So these are out of discussions with the captain, with AC Flaherty, with the deputy chief that's overseeing that particular GO. And again, it's there. there isn't one standardized place to put all of those GOs in development uh, because essentially what, we're, what we found out in June of this year during our assessment, the beginning of our assessment, that starting in essentially um, August of 2022, all the way through May of 2023, the people that were developing process, developing policies were agreeing to use guidelines under a, a DGO that was no longer in effect. So gathering all of that information and then, and then figuring out where to put it in, that is a decision, those decisions are coming in uh, with several people in the department, yes. So the answer is yes, the department's making those decisions yes. on its own. Okay. Um, and I, just one other thing you said in response to Director Henderson, you said that some DGOs had been pending for so long under the prior 3.01 that the decision was made to simply restart them at stage one. And I guess I was just, that didn't make sense to me. So there was so much delay that we, we wanted to delay further by restarting them at the beginning of the process, even though they had, they had already had some amount of work done on them? That, that didn't make sense. Sure. So the uh, in looking at the development process, of, of, and I'll talk about specific, there's two DGOs that I can think of. One where we started it from the beginning. Um, it had started under the old 301, which didn't have the same deadlines that the current 301 has, right? So when we say languishing, it, there was no specific deadline that it needed to adhere to. But because of certain agreements after the current 301 was approved, there were agreements to just make decisions whether how to move forward. And I can give you this, I, we can also give you the updates where they are specifically and, and what occurred because each one, is, each one is so vastly different from the other. So there were decisions when specifically recently when SMEs have changed. So the subject matter expert, the main drafting uh, officer is no longer with the department or no longer in that bureau. We have a new deputy chief assigned to a bureau who had nothing to do with a draft DGO. And then upon review, stated that it did not actually reflect where they wanted it to move forward. And so they wanted it to start under the 301. So we're under, we're challenged with how to recalibrate these DGOs that all the way up until basically June of 2023 have been under old 301. Right. Okay. That makes sense. And I, so I understand that uh, it's going to be an individualized process for each DGO figuring out where to slot it into the three into 3.01. I mean, 3.01's not been on the books for a while. Um, I guess what I would ask is that the commission, at a minimum, the commission president and the commissioner who was, who was assigned to that DGO be consulted in that. Because as I understand it, only the commission is empowered to interpret 3.01. And if the department can't, I think, can't be making decisions in isolation without notification to the commission, to DPA, to the public, um, to make these types of one-off interpretations. I mean, I think at a minimum, the commissioner who's overseeing the development and the president should be informed of this and have some they input are. in the process. Sure. So uh, that's not, I don't share that understanding. I believe that 301 was adopted by the commission, but it is the department's 
job to interpret the policies that their members have to comply with. So in, in that, I mean, your statement would essentially mean that the department has no ability to train or interpret the, their members on any DGOs that exist. Um, so we are interpreting 301 and doing our best to create um, practical ways to apply it because it uh, calls out written directives unit quite a bit on what their requirements are to comply with that DGO. So um, don't share that particular understanding. So we are interpreting 301 and, we, and it is our it is our job to apply it so that our staff, which is written directives and called out specifically in 301, can practically apply the guidelines. Okay, yeah, I don't think we need to get a whole side discussion about it. <laughs> I think there's a distinction between interpretation and implementation. It is the department's job to implement 3.01, but the commission is the final arbiter of what all of our DGOs mean. You know, just you were here a couple weeks ago when we passed a resolution interpreting the meaning of one of our uh, DGOs, two of our DGOs, so that we could afford officers the ability to use spike strips preemptively. Um, that was something that only the commission could do. Um, it's the same for all of our DGOs, but I appreciate and I'm heartened to hear that um, that the commission will be kept abreast of further decisions about where to slot in um, individual DGOs. So I have been actually uh, CCing Sergeant Youngblood and asking him to forward those to the commission who is assigned or the commissioner that is assigned to those particular DGOs. So we are keeping Sergeant Youngblood in the loop whenever we make um, kind of go through the stage one or stage two of the DGO. Can I, so, can I add a suggestion? To, I know you said you're going to provide an update and I think that'll be a real clarifier for all of this, because I'm sure the public is, this is in the weeds for a lot of this. Uh, but I think what would probably be most helpful if that uh, update includes the next steps as well. Sure. Because I, I think that'll answer a lot of the questions. Certainly, yeah. I just, Definitely. thank you. I hear you. Yeah, sure. Oh. I do have some, I don't know that it, the old versus new 3.1 is that confusing. We did um, say that these DGOs would be under the old 3.01, but each commissioner sat down and gave the department at that time like deadlines to provide certain drafts and some were met, some, were, some weren't, um, you know, some commissioners were more engaged with monitoring that process. But our position is once there was a labor opinion that only the new 3.01 could apply, we would have liked to have sat down with the department and provided input on where it should be inserted in the 3.01 process. For example, DGO 9.06, which is vehicle tows, um, that was pending since 2021. Lieutenant Altifer asked me if we could delay that even further till DGO 9.01, the traffic DGO was completed. Um, and I said, totally fine, let's just put a pin in it for six months. And then the next thing I know is that after 9.01 is passed, I get a notification from the department that they're starting 9.06 all over again without any like honoring the original agreement or any explanation. So I think if we could just like loop DPA in and have an open channel of communication, um, I think that would be helpful as well, just so we all know what's happening. Yeah. I. I think it, that makes sense there, during this transitional time when, when we're transitioning to new 3.01, there'll be questions about what to do. And I just think looping in the relevant entities um, would make sense. 
So I'd like to make a quick note that again, so current 301 went into effect in July of 2022. So while there were agreements made where individual commissioners were involved and maybe individual commissioners were interpreting it, there are legal implications with using a DGO that no longer exists. So that's the part, the risk management portion that wasn't considered, that when using a GO that doesn't exist anymore, regardless if there was meetings and agreements and in, in individual commissioners involved, when inheriting this um, work, it's challenging to agree to uh, honor old 301 when it, it, the current 301 had gone through meet and confer process and became a legally binding document, right? So, right. I, I think, I think issue. you know, I think we all agree with that, that we all have to follow the sure. new 3.01. And uh, I just think the decision about where it belongs in the new 3.01 is what we're talking about. And I just think looping in DPA, looping in the commissioner who's charged with overseeing it, I think that that's, that would be the best way to handle it going forward, that's all. So in 301 also, just one last thing, the deputy chief has the authority to set that timeline, I, and we have been looping in the commission and the DPA. So I definitely agree with uh, Executive Director Henderson. What we'd like to do, I think it's a fantastic suggestion, is get a list so that you can see where it is, um, because our cron logs don't necessarily match what was in the DPA report. And we'd also like DPA to have that information prior to the next quarterly report so that it can be incorporated in and then provide you with the next step. So, so there's and no surprises. And I also feel like it, it eliminates the need for us to be so much in the weeds if, say, for yeah. example, some of those suggestions are already wrapped up, are part of where we currently are, but we just don't know, it gives us a clean slate to evaluate exactly where we are. I mean, it's rather than trying to anticipate what that process is and where you guys are, if you just tell us and then what the next steps are, I think this is a communication thing, but it's yeah. also a back and forth in terms of we have an objective list. Things are happening, but I think without us having something in front of us to tell us where are we with these lists, what we're doing, and what's happening at the next steps, we're just leaving it back to subjective interpretation. I, don't, I just don't know that this is going to resolve it. Sure. On a case-by-case -case basis, but. And I, I absolutely agree with that suggestion, so we can provide that to both DPA and the commission. Great, glad we're all in agreement. Um, Question for DPA, for Director Kaywood. Um, both you and Director Henderson have brought up various times the, the need to um, have an audit of um, stop data and to involve outside partners. And there's been various discussion about what that might look like. And I'm just wondering if DPA has any updates on that front or any just thoughts about what what, what that could look like. Uh, um. sure. We've been vetting uh, national experts, academic experts um, in stop data and data in general that we uh, hope to invite to a working group should SFPD agree to convene one. Great, thanks. Um, Chief, could I ask you a question or perhaps Ms. Steves as well? Um, I just as I was about to ask you, my, uh, my computer went to sleep. But if I recall, I'm just gonna pull up the, uh, the chart that DPA provided with the languishing DGOs. Um, and it's also in the, uh, the hard copy of section eight on the paperwork. Right, 
So I'm looking at uh, DGO one, let's say 1.06 on page three at the very bottom. So concurrence completed May 5th of this year. And it's not passed yet. It's, it's pending with the chief and I'm just wondering if there's any update on, on just why this isn't before the commission at this point. Yeah, this, oh, I'm sorry. This is one where we have, I believe, worked out all the kinks, and that is one that I believe, is this the one where I offer language? Yeah, so that one is done. I just gotta get it to Aja, and she's been hounding me to do that, but it's done. And I'm just, so, I'm having flashbacks now to my um, my day with the PDD team where we talked about the process. And just as I understand it, concurrence is 40 business days. Then it goes to the chief and the chief has five days to send it to the commission. Is that not right? Yeah. Uh, close, very close. Um, so you were listening. So 40 days, uh, the meetings must conclude. And then at the conclusion of simultaneous concurrence, the DPA has five business days to request a meeting with the chief. They did that in this case for 106, I believe it is. Uh, within five business days of the conclusion of simultaneous concurrence, they requested a meeting. And then that meeting, there's no designated timeline in 301 for when that meeting should occur. And then there's no designated timeline in 301 for how long it takes for that particular document to be finalized. I think that we did see that this happens, right? So if the DPA meets with the chief, what we'd like to do to solve this problem is make sure that there's a PDD staff member in that meeting so that we can capture the edits as they're agreed upon in that meeting so we can immediately take it back to written directives and have it edited. So this one is, uh, there were revisions and it was uh, an unstaffed meeting, at least on the SFPD side, and the chief is slammed, so. So then in the, in the section after simultaneous concurrence to so section F, and, and I know you've committed this to memory, um, upon chief approval and within five business days of receipt from the chief's office, WDU shall submit the draft to the commission. Yes. So it's your, you interpret 3.01 in a way that, so as I read it, when concurrence is over, the draft it, and DPA, if DPA requests its meeting with the chief within five days, after that process, I understand the draft to be with the chief. And you're saying it can it be with the chief. It okay. can be. Um, yes. And so, okay. And so I read that language uh, as saying that, you know, this is like a, a ministerial thing. The chief's got five days and then this has got to go out. But you're interpreting that as saying the chief has an unlimited amount of so time. So those are two different sections. So what you're, you're conflating the simultaneous well, concurrence. Well, no, and no, no, no. I'm not, let's be clear. I'm not conflating. It's just, I read it as one thing happening after the next in sure. order. And I, um, so 
in my explanation, I'm letting you know. So in the simultaneous concurrent section that we're talking about with the 40 days conclusion and then the five day just to make the request for the meeting, the meeting then occurs, the chief can make decisions about the draft EGO. So let's say the meeting doesn't occur and it's just in the 40 day period and then that concludes. The chief still has time that's not designated in 301 in to actually make decisions. Excuse me? And you're saying it's that's an unlimited amount of time? It's not unlimited. It's just not designated. There's not a designated deadline. And so that, what's those are the, two different phrases. What is the limit then? If it's not unlimited, what is the limit? It and just means that there is no designated time to ask for an extension. So if there was, let's say there was a 30-day development time frame for the chief's review, then we could reach out and say, hey, there's this timeline and we'd like to ask for more time. But the way the concurrent section works, there is this non-designated timeline that is problematic. We would like to so fix that by being present in those isn't meetings. Isn't that just another way of saying unlimited? I, I'm just, I'm not trying to go back and forth, but I just want to make sure I'm clear. When you say it's there's no designated timeline and there's no extension needed, how is that different than saying, so could the chief hold it for six months? We don't, so it's, there's two separate but, things going on. But so could, PDD, I, could I, but just I like, could you, could you just answer, could the chief hold it for six months? We would not let him. PDD would not. But could he? Under your interpretation, could he hold it for six months? That's really, I'm really Without just, him going into a non compliance mode, yes. He could. Okay. However, C PDD exists to make sure that things keep moving. And so this is one of the problems that we identified with you, President, on how we want to address those types of problems so that it's not unlimited. And could the chief hold it for a year under your reading? Could he? Not, not would he, but could he? He could without it being a non-compliant issue. So yes. Could he hold it for two years? He wouldn't. But he could. Without it being a non-compliant issue. Yeah, if we're, if we're okay. reaching a like, discussion of if you're, being, you're out of compliance okay. with 301. Okay, so, so this came up at the last Sparks report, and I just don't see how you can read a document that provides step-by-step -step instructions. And you know that I agree with you, and we talked about it, I agree with you that there are many areas where it lacks clarity. So there's no disagreement about that. But one thing that I do think is clear is that it's, a, it's, just, it's written like a step-by-step -step cookbook. One step happens after the next. And to interpret, to interpret it to basically a lot unlimited amounts of time in between steps, I just don't think that that's a reasonable interpretation. And it's the whole point of the new 3.01. It was passed to implement USDOJ recommendations about policies taking too long to revise. It was passed in response to behavior under the prior 3.01, where we had languishing DGOs. So to interpret this to kind of efface the whole point of the new 3.01, yeah. I, I just, I don't see how that's a reasonable interpretation. I agree with you in that that's the goal of the DGO as it exists. It is not, um, the result of the DGO as it exists. Uh, but again, so we have been doing these sessions so that PDD can determine how best to fill those gaps because we agree with you. We don't think that those, those times that are non-designated should not go unchecked. So those are things that PDD, written directives, PDU, and eventually the working group unit itself will be aware of those non-designated timelines so that we can put our own timelines into it so when we check. But with that particular example, um, we have we believe that if we're present in those meetings, we can immediately grab those edits and take them back to written directives. Great, Ms. Kaywood. Yeah. I'd just like to point out that DGO 6.14, 
uh, went to concurrence on March 24th, 2023, and it's technically been on the chief's desk for seven months. I know other work has been done, but when I've asked the department to file an extension of time, the, what's told to me is we don't have to, it's with the chief and there's no deadline. Uh, that's in March. Um, 1.06 with the chief for five months. Um, and I think this discussion harkens me back to my years as an appellate attorney. Um, this is a, re a regulation and there's a, a statutory interpretation principle called the doctrine of absurdity. And you can't interpret, even if you're relying on the plain language, you can't interpret um, a statute or a law in a way that would lead to absurd results. And I think the department's interpretation is uh, bordering on that because what you have, there's no point if you have seven months in between stage three and four, there's no point in having a 30 day deadline in stage five. Like these whirlpools of interstitial time just uh, don't make sense. And I don't think th that they so are supported by any kind of legal interpretation of this regulation. Thanks. Great. I, I think maybe the commission will maybe need to interpret the current 3.01 to clarify some of these apparent um, differences in interpretation. All right, um, I see that Commissioner Benedicto uh, is in the queue. Commissioner. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Uh, thank you for that presentation. Um, I think a lot of what I was going to ask were covered by Director Henderson and the Vice President, so I won't belabor. Um, I would ask, I, I know that it, um, we, we had a couple of agendized conversations now about a review of the stop data. Um, and it sounds like that DPA is working with the department to see if a review can be constructed. So it doesn't sound like there's a place right now for any, any commission activity on that. But if um, certainly if that, that need becomes more apparent, I'd ask that uh, Director Henderson bring that to the commission's attention. I wonder if it makes sense. Um, I mean, so one issue on this languishing DGOs is that there are these, uh, these 14. It, it, it is good to see that number go down and to see 12 get passed. I think as Director Cable acknowledged, you really have seen this commission act decisively to, to, and quickly to update DGOs uh, at a faster rate, with the, working with the department then in decades. Um, and you've seen the commission do that while also engaging in some of the most sustained outreach and, and, and solicitation of community feedback then in decades. Um, and so the fact that this commission has been able, uh, along with DPA and the department, has been able to do both um, enact uh, DGOs at a really uh, good pace to have them done in cooperation with the agencies that we oversee and to do so with um, having solicit community feedback and public comment, I think is a testament to this commission and the, and the department. So I, I commend my fellow commissioners and Director Henderson, the chief, for, for allowing that process uh, to continue to proceed. I, I'd also, you know, would be remiss if I didn't call out the times we've done so nimbly in this last year. Uh, twice in the last year, we've made important updates to DGO 5.01 in close collaboration with command staff and a command staff's request. One, to reduce the unnecessary uh, paperwork associated with use of force which was in response to command staff raising that, and another in response to the department making the decision to pause the use of um, preemptive deployment of spike strips. So I think that's another example of that the, the, the commission is moving uh, in response to that feedback as well. Um, I would want to ask, are there any new stall, like, are, are there any DGOs that perhaps, that weren't on that list of 26 because they weren't stalled as of last year, but maybe, that there's still been no activity, so now they make their way. Like, are we adding anything to the stalled list, or is it just that it's this body of 26 that we've now reduced by 12? Um, I don't think any others are significantly delayed. I didn't, I didn't go back and dig. I'm 
on DGO overload this week, so uh, I can check and look into that. But I think we're in good shape on the other ones. Okay. I mean, I think it might be helpful. I think some of the most helpful part of the conversation that we just had up here was when we got into specifics and the vice president asked the chief about 1.06 and we got, and you responded, that, you know, you had a back and forth and now we know that we should see that submitted fairly soon. I think it makes sense, um, you know, what, uh, I think a lot of the Spark support presentations have improved a lot in the last number of years, certainly from they used to be much more opaque, but it is still a lot of, a lot of ground to cover in one meeting. I think it might make sense, and I've made the request here to agendize, uh, which I think we also did last year, a specific uh, agenda item for the remaining languishing DGOs, so we can go uh, in, open, in open session. I know there's often one, one one-to-one -one communications between commissioners and the department, but I think to have us go through those 14 open sessions, so we hear from the chief and from um, Ms. Steves and Captain Toomer where this one is, we hear, you know, if DBA has a question, maybe that can be answered, and that way we go through the specifics of the languishing DGOs. Sure, and I'd just like to clarify, I don't, for the DGOs that are stalled, that are frustrating to DPA, because they've been, we can't get an answer for seven months, um, I, those aren't sitting with the policy unit. I know they're moving as fast as they can. They're sitting with other people. Absolutely, so I exactly. I don't want that, them to feel blamed for that, you know, frustration. Of, uh, Absolutely, exactly. And, and I think the goal is, is, yeah, I think that that's a very helpful clarification. The goal would be to ensure that we're having that communication. As Director Henderson pointed out, some of what we're having here is communications issues more than substantive issues. Just knowing, uh, again, just learning tonight that, that we've gotten uh, updates on 1.06 and, and, you know, the Chief's given that to Aja soon was helpful information for us to learn. So I think, exactly, I think just getting those answers questions, so, uh, those questions answered so we know where the various issues are, whether they're with PDD or whether they're with DPA or with waiting for current or with the Chief, I think that that'd be helpful. Yeah, and for example, DGO 5.06, which is one of your DGOs, we've, there's an important Fourth Amendment issue that needs deciding that we've talked about for two years. DPA's stated, we've stated our position and provided authorities. So did Captain um, Harvey and Captain Perdomo. So I think at some point, you know, we just need to pull the trigger and make a decision and have it um, go through the city attorney and then hear from the POA lawyers because it's an important Fourth Amendment issue. We've had disciplinary cases on it and officers need guidance. Absolutely, thank you. Chief Scott. Uh, just um, thank you, Vice President Carter-Overstone. So there is one that um, the Serious Incident Review Board that is not, it's a new DGO, but that one's been hanging for quite some time. So part of this tracking, we will identify where that is. I, I'm not sure exactly where it is, but to answer your question, and I don't think that's a, no DPA had an interest in it, but I don't. I think that's one that we share with DPA and the commission. We don't have it yet. I have conferred with um, retired Lieutenant Nevin, and I know that he and um, Sergeant Crudo completed it, and they said that they submitted it either up their chain or to written directives. So it should be starting the 3.01 process soon. Yeah, no, I, I, it was sent, but I think it just got kind of, it, it probably, I think it was sent even before you started with DPA. No, but they've totally rewritten it at this point, so. Serious Incident Review Board? Yes. And I have the most current draft. I don't, I think the one, the one that I have was sent. So um, anyway, we, 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 we okay. will figure it out. I'm just saying that's one that's really important that we want to move that has been sitting. So I, I'm not sure exactly where that lies, but I just wanted to answer your question. The other thing is with this new unit, and this was on one of the slides that Ms. Steves presented, now that we have uh, the personnel in place and the tracking in place that we don't, we hope to eliminate these problems. So 
just we know there's some gaps and part of this process will be identifying these gaps and working with DPA and the Commission to make sure that we uh, regardless of what happens with 3.01 that we, we fix the gaps that we have so uh, that will happen director Henderson thank you I, I'm not gonna belabor the stuff that we've already gone over I just wanted to raise one of the points I've some of the substantive stuff because you mentioned uh, Ms. Kay with some of the stuff from the stop data and one of the things that we had talked about last week was I think I'd asked for one of the commissioners to be assigned uh, I'd indicated that we've started uh, collaborating or figuring out scope scale of the review given the data and information that we have and I think you alluded to some of the recommendations, but one of the things I'd asked for was one of the commissioners to be assigned. I just wanted to follow up. I know I threw your name out there, uh, Commissioner Benedict. Yeah, I thought it was me since it was, uh, since it was, it's the audit team that's working on it and I've already been pre assigned as the audit liaison. I know, I just wanted yeah. to. Yes, I think it's me. <laughs> I presumed as much, uh, but I hadn't mentioned it before that we'll probably reach out just to give you some of that information so we can have more regular updates about the details so it's not something that's just going to go away or we have to wait for the next sparks report to address the issues in terms of where we are and what the next steps are to keep the commission informed okay i think i have a meeting with the audit team on calendar maybe we can add it to that agenda i presumed but i didn't yeah, want to take it for granted fine. and so i just wanted to articulate that great thanks just one last question chief uh, DPA mentioned today that they are vetting potential outside organizations, academic institutions that could do a third-party independent audit of SF, SFPD stop data. And I just wanted to clarify with you that I think it was the last Sparks report when there was a suggestion that SFPD should, should audit, you had said that there might be issues around just staffing to do that. But I'm assuming that if we get an outside organization and that organization is reputable, like a university, and will do it for free, that there won't be any issue in terms of handing over the data to that organization, especially since this is RIPA data, so it's supposed to be made publicly available. Yeah, we there usually is not. Um, but one thing that we do routinely when there's that type of arrangement is we consult with the city attorney on whatever data sharing agreement. There's certain language that, you know, that is recommended. So usually we are able to get through all those. We have many uh, agreements with academic organizations, but it is a process and we do uh, consult with the city attorney to make sure that city's interest with data is protected. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Um, Sergeant, could you take us to public comment, please? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, the Sparks Report, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 10, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 9.04, seatbelt policy, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Good evening, commissioners. Good evening, Chief. Director Henderson. Uh, Officer Olkowitz from Traffic Department, and I'm here to present DGO 904. Um, this is the most current draft. It's been, I think, simpled down as, as much as possible to 
allow for it. It was too hard to put in every conceivable scenario in here for when to wear and when not to wear a seatbelt. So we went through it, and I think this is probably, in my mind, a uh, honest attempt at a good, simple policy. Great. Thank you so much for that and for the hard work on the policy. Um, and I, I love that it's short and sweet. Yes. Um, That's the goal. Uh, I see Commissioner Benedicto. <clears throat> yeah, I, I was going to make that same I was going to make that same point. I like that it's short and sweet, two pages. Um, it, it's a double whammy. It's shorter and it's newer. Our, the, this Priority Joe is, is 1994. So um, just the, that makes it, what, 30 years old? This, the, the are going to be this, this Priority Joe could rent a car with a seatbelt in it. So it's good to see uh, us continue to make progress. I know exactly. I wonder what the state of our seatbelts were uh, in my continued quest to have no DJOs from the 90s uh, on our books as soon as possible. I'm, I'm glad to see that. And so I don't have any questions. I'm happy to make a motion to adopt this DGO for use um, with meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units subject to our labor resolution 23-30. Is there a second? I'll second the motion. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item 10, DGO 9.04, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 11, public comment on all matters pertaining to item 13 below closed session. Including public comment on item 12, vote whether to hold item 13 in closed session. If you'd like to make public comment regarding closed session, please approach the podium. And there is no public comment. Line item 12, vote on whether to hold item 13 in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code section 67.10, action. Motion to hold the next item in closed session. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have five yeses. We will go into closed session. GovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television. Thank you. 
All right, Commissioners, we are back in open session on line item 14. Vote to elect whether to disclose any or all discussion on item 13 held in closed session. San Francisco Administrative Code, section 67.12A, action. Uh, motion to not disclose with the exception of factual information provided that will be disclosed in the minutes. Second. Members of the public would like to make public comment regarding line item 14. Please approach the podium. Seeing none, on the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. And Vice President Carter Oberstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Oberstone is yes. You have five yeses. Line item 15, adjournment. Chief, when do you sleep? <laughs> Very little. You good, Stacy. <laughs> <laughs>